Good morning, Evangel. Good morning to those that are in the building. Good morning to you at home watching on the live stream. We're glad you have joined us. We're going to ask that you stand and you sing with us this morning. We are your church. We are your sons and daughters. We've gathered here to meet with you. Our eyes. We lift our eyes, we lay our hearts before you, expect and hear for you to move with our hands to the heavens alive in your presence, oh God, when you come, so pour out your spirit. Spirit, we love to be near you, oh God. When you come, you are the way. You are the way. The truth and life we live for. Oh, how we long to know you more. You are the way. You are the way. The truth and Yeah. 
Good morning. Won't you greet one another before you're seated this morning? Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I want to welcome you to the service today. And uh, those of you who are here in the building, welcome and glad to have you here. And uh, on this beautiful, uh, sunny Sunday morning, and uh, Many are enjoying vacation time. Some, sadly, have COVID, and, and, uh, but you're able to be here, and so we're glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here today. <laughs> and also, I want to welcome those of you who are watching on the live stream today. We're glad that you could join us on this beautiful Sunday morning as well. So welcome to the service. If this is your first time at Evangel on a Sunday morning, then we want to welcome you especially and just let you know that uh, we'd love to be able to track along with you and serve you and come alongside you as best we can. And so the process that we use is to ask you to fill out a connection card that you'll find in the chair pouch in front of you. And if you want to fill that out and take it to the information desk at the end of the service, you can leave it there and there's a small gift there that you can pick up as you leave today. We're glad that you're here. Just one announcement uh, this morning. Just want to remind us that uh, we're continuing towards our goal of, uh, of providing 30 backpacks to grade one Indigenous students. It's a basically 50% boy-girl split uh, in uh, northern Ontario. And um, uh, early in August, it, a group of people will be going to that area to deliver and drop off the backpacks to have everything there in time for school in September. And so if you want to sponsor a backpack or multiple backpacks, uh, they are $70 each. That's what it costs to fill them. And, uh, and that includes also just not just the school supplies, but a lunch bag and water bottle and, and so on. So uh, if you want to be a part of that, you can give your donation. If you feel that, you know, you can't do a whole uh, backpack of $70, whatever you can give is great. Just, uh, just indicate whether it's on your envelope this morning as we take up our offering momentarily, or you can give electronically through e-transfer by sending it to epcoakville at giving, uh, epcoakville at giving.com. That's not right. EPC, giving. giving, yeah, thank you. Okay, let's start again. It's giving at epcoakville.com. Yeah, get that right. Thank you. Uh, for helping me there. So yeah, you can do that, and you can do that with your regular offering as well. Kids, you are free to go over to the side, meet your volunteers. We're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings at this time. God bless you as you give this morning. We're going to begin to sing songs of worship and reflection, and once you have given in your offering, you're welcome to stand and join us. You unravel me with a melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies 
Over every heart and every 
We stand in total freedom to be able to say, Abba, Father, we are your children. Jesus, Lamb of God, we can't find the words to thank you for the power that you have given us to say your name and know that it brings peace and know that it brings your presence and know that there is deliverance and there is freedom in the name. And so with, with audacious faith, we who are gathered here and watching on this live stream, we stand in the awesome privilege of saying we are children of God. We have a right to call on the name of Jesus through nothing we've done of our own, but through a grace that is bigger than we will ever know or understand. And so would you see the hearts of faith here this morning, even the hearts with little faith who are standing in a place to say we are children of God. We are no longer slaves to something that holds us, but that there is freedom. And it's freedom in the name. And with gratefulness, we say yes and amen. Amen. You may remain standing while we hear the word. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, a little longer perhaps today. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. 
Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thank you. You may be seated. I grew up in a town of less than 5,000 people, and we lived in the lower end of town. We had a couple of small supermarkets, but they were located in the upper end of town. And so because we didn't own a car, shopping at these supermarkets meant depending on someone else to give you a ride or, and take you there and bring you back with your groceries or hiring a taxi. Now, in addition to these couple of smaller supermarkets, there were four or five small general stores dotted throughout the town. And there was one within a five-minute walk from our house. And it carried most of the necessities that we needed, and so we, most often we shopped there. Now, when I was a little guy, uh, it was common for people to have what was called a grocery bill. And what that was was an account or a credit line. And so if you were short on cash, you'd put your groceries on your grocery bill and you'd pay it off when you got paid. That was very, very common. My mother, was, who was responsible for grocery shopping in our household, frequently was a frequent user of the grocery bill. So I would often be told, you know, here's the list go down to the store and get these items and tell them to put it on the account. Tell them to put it on the grocery bill. Now, the problem was my mother frequently added items to the account, but rarely paid it down. And so over time, the bill became quite large. In fact, it became unmanageable. And I talked about my dad last week, and one of my dad's things was, you know, he wasn't a debt guy because he had no idea that this was going on. He had no idea that my mother was doing this, and he had no idea that we owed that much money. The owners knew our family, so they allowed my mom to continue to rack up the bill, thinking that they were helping us. And so a few years later, the owners sold the store, And the sale included the store and all of the inventory and the assets, but also all of the debt. And so within a short time, the new owner began to contact those with outstanding debt. To my mom's surprise, the new owner informed her that he was actually writing off her debt. And she was no longer responsible for repayment. Now, as you can imagine, my mother was shocked at the level of grace that was shown to her. Grace she didn't deserve on a debt that was too large to pay. Now, last week, we launched a four-week series, which we've entitled True to His Word, based on Luke 4, where Jesus, standing in the synagogue, is reading Isaiah 61, declaring what the kingdom of God is all about, declaring what his mission is, declaring what ultimately our mission is. And so throughout this series, we're going to take each of the statements that he made in Luke 4 and consider how he fulfilled each one, showing that he was indeed true to his word. He said it, and then he did it. And so last week we started with proclaiming good news to the poor. This week we'll consider freedom for captives. And as we do, we're going to be reminded today 
that it is only when we understand the enormity of the forgiveness that we have been granted by God will we be able to demonstrate unlimited forgiveness to others. So last week we started with the context and I'd like to start there again this week. It's important to understand that Luke 4 and Isaiah 61, which for the most part is a direct quoting of in Luke 4, is framed within the Jewish celebration of the year of Jubilee. The language that's used there, the ideas that are contained there. The year of Jubilee was observed every 50th year in Israel. And it was understood in Israel that the land that people worked and lived on belonged to God and was given to individuals to steward that land, to care for it, to cultivate it. If a person found themselves in financial difficulty, they could sell the stewardship of the land to someone else for whatever duration of time was remaining up until the year of Jubilee. Now, during Jubilee, the land was returned at no charge to the original steward of the land. If a house was sold on the land, then the house was returned with the land for free. In tough financial times, when things got really bad, whole families sold themselves as servants, sold themselves into slavery to work off the debts that were owing. But during Jubilee, the debt was forgiven and the families, the captives, were released. They were set free. The practice of Jubilee had long been lost in Israel by the time we get to Luke 4. The religious leaders had become increasingly wealthy. The lower class were experiencing poverty and rejection and abuse, while these religious elite increased in power and in control and vast resources. And so Jesus appeared on the scene. The timing of his appearance was during a, a jubilee breakdown, if you will, and his announcements echoed the provisions of Jubilee. The things that he said were reminiscent of, of, of the year of Jubilee. And so in this case today, freedom for captives. The example that I want to look at today that reminds us that Jesus was true to his word in freedom for captives is found in Matthew 18. Now Matthew 18 emphasizes the importance of forgiveness and provides principles to guide us in, in that regard. It was a question from Peter that prompted Jesus' teaching in this particular part of the scripture we read today. Peter wanted to know what the limit was. What is the limit for the number of times that you would extend forgiveness to somebody else? How many times do I have to do that? What's the appropriate number of times? Now, even though Judaism stressed the importance of forgiveness, there were many rabbis at this time that taught that you should limit forgiveness to three times if it's for the same sin. So really, three strikes, you're out. So you could do the same thing wrong three times, but after that, there's, there's no hope for you. Peter understood that forgiveness was important, but he reasoned that there, there must be a limit. There must be a point where it's like, you know, for those, if you sin and then you repent and you keep doing the same thing, there must come a point where, you know, you run out of, for, you know, options to be forgiven. And so thinking he was being generous and, you know, he, he spoke up and said, you know, how many times, Jesus, seven times would be appropriate since, well, you know, it's more than double the number of times commonly taught in in Judaism, and we all know that, you know, seven is God's number, right? So, you know, seven sounds, sounds good. Jesus' response to Peter was even more extreme than Peter's generous offer. Now, whether we understand, because it depends on the translation you read, some translations say, you know, 77 times, and others say 70 times seven, and, and really the Greek language is so elusive there that we're not really sure which it is, and the point is it's not actually very important. It's, it's sort of insignificant because the point that Jesus is making in making this statement is that forgiveness cannot be limited. It cannot be limited. There is not a set number of times and then after that, forgiveness expires. 
Jesus supported the exhortation to forgive without limit by telling a parable, a story, which depicted the limitless forgiveness of God and the necessity for his followers to not withhold forgiveness. Now, I believe that all of us have experienced pain and hardship as the result of the impact of the behavior, the words, the attitude of another person. We've all been subjected to that. And when somebody hurts us, a debt is created. And, you know, you hurt me, and therefore now you, you owe me. And we even use that language, right? We say, you owe me an apology. Or you owe me restitution for what you, you, you took from me because of the losses that we've suffered by your words and by your actions. You, there's a debt that's created. And like Peter, many of us understand and we believe that forgiveness is important. We, we believe that, yet we struggle with how much should we engage in forgiveness? How much should I be forgiving? How forgiving should I be? Are there any boundaries where I stop being forgiving? Often we struggle with understanding what exactly is involved with forgiving another person and to what extent we should go and, you know, is grace limited sometimes? And the truth is, sometimes we have more questions than answers when we're forced to navigate the painful path of being wronged, we've been wronged, and we're navigating that, that path of being wrong and trying to find a way forward, and, and we want to move forward in a way that is honoring to God and beneficial to us as individuals. And so I believe Peter's question was a good question. I believe it's a good question, and I believe that it's a question that many of us would have wrestled with and, and wrestle with on a daily basis and I believe that Jesus' response to his question can give us some insight in that, in that struggle. So let's take a look at that. My second point I've entitled, um, Much is Given. Much is Given. Jesus often answered questions by telling a parable or a story that people could relate to that illustrated an important truth. Jesus told a parable, a story here in response to Peter's question, and the story is about a king, and there are two primary servant characters in this story. We're told the king or the master wanted to settle his accounts with his servants, and most likely, and which was common in this day, is that they would have been what's known as tax farmers. They would be tax farmers, and, and they, were, they were contracted by the king, by the master, to collect taxes in certain regions on his behalf. They were what's known as tax farmers. And the tax farmers would be allowed to keep a percentage, a portion of the taxes for their services and pass the remainder on to the king. That's why tax collectors were so hated in Jesus' time because A, they were coming to get your taxes and B, most often they were charging you more than the king wanted and keeping that for themselves. And so they weren't really very popular people. The first of the two servants in the story owed the king an extravagant amount of money. Depending on your translation, it could say 10,000 talents or in the one I read this morning, the NIV, it says 10,000 bags of gold. To put it in perspective, there were 60 million denarii in a talent. One denarii was in this, in this amount here. There were, there were 60 million. And one denarii was equal to a day's pay. And so when you do the amount... The, the math, the amount owing was so high that it would take this servant 164,000 years to repay it. Basically the same as it takes a 25-year-old to pay off a mortgage now. A hundred, right? 164,000 years. And so obviously Jesus was using this number to stress, uh, you know, an important point. He wants to show the impossibility of ever being able to work off this debt. It's just not possible. 
Now, we're not told why the servant didn't have the money. We don't know. Did he steal it for himself? Did he, was he lazy and failed to? We, we don't know, and we're not told because it, the story is not really not about that. The story is about, it's not about assessing blame and the reason why, you know, he did a wrong thing. It, you know, that's assumed in the story. He's done something wrong here. The king ordered that the man along with his wife and his children be sold into slavery. And he's doing that because in these days, your wife and your children were considered your property. And so his family, along with everything they owned, was to be sold to pay off whatever they could get from the debt that was owed. The servant begged the king, you know, falling on his knees, begging him, asking him for an opportunity, asking him for time to pay this impossible debt, knowing that paying off this debt was, would never be possible. The king knew that, but as he saw the man begging and, and the need and the desperation, it says that the king had compassion on him. Last week, we talked about compassion being composed of two parts. Empathy, feeling the pain of another person, feeling the pain of their, of their lives, and secondly, action, doing something to alleviate the pain. And so the king had compassion. And so in compassion, the king saw the dilemma of the man, and he decided that he would do something about it, and his doing something about it was, you know what? I am going to release you outright from this enormous debt, providing grace to him where none should be found. This first part of the parable, the first part of the story here, is dealing what we will call divine forgiveness, God's forgiveness. The king in our story is God. The servants represent people. We are sinful people in need of God's forgiveness and his grace. We are in need of a personal relationship with God that on our own is not possible because sin keeps us from God. The debt of our sin is so great that even with our best efforts and our best intentions, we can never earn the necessary grace. We are captives. We are captives of sin in need of freedom, and we are powerless. We are powerless to experience it on our own. And God, who is merciful, God who loves us beyond what we could ever comprehend looks at us in our desperate state and he has compassion on us. He feels our pain and he determines to do something about it. And we all know that his something about it was Jesus willingly laying down his life and dying on a cross, taking our sin upon himself, allowing us to be free and to live in relationship with God. The debt of our sin has been paid. We are free. We are free to love and to serve God because he has granted us immeasurable grace and forgiveness. Now, truth is, this part of the parable doesn't answer Peter's question. It doesn't answer the question about the limitations of forgiving others. But what it does, the first part of the story, what it does is that it sets the foundation of God's divine forgiveness that establishes a standard. A standard is established in God's forgiveness that will help us navigate interpersonal forgiveness. And this part of the parable reminds us that much is given. Much is given. Beyond comprehension, beyond what we ever would deserve, has been given. Thirdly, much is required. So we pick up the story. Upon his release, the servant went to a, the second servant in the story, his fellow servant, his co-worker, if you will, 
And the coworker owed him money. And he went to him and he said, I want payment for what you owe me. Now we're told in the story here, it's, it's 100 denarii. That's the equivalent. Again, if a denarii is a day's labor, then that's 100 days of work. I mean, really, when you compare the two debts, this is really trivial in comparison to what it was owed to the king and had been forgiven already. The debt owed to the servant could be repaid in time. I mean, for him to say, you know, I can work it off, it's not like I can work the next 164,000 years and pay this off. No, I can just work the next 100 days, you know, give me a little bit of time. I, I can pull this off. This is doable. This is doable. And so the first servant, hearing the cries and the pleading and the begging of his fellow servant, decided, yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And we're told that he had the man who owed him thrown into prison. Now, this was common when debts were owed since throwing you into prison would be an incentive for your family to rally together and to collect the debt owing so that their loved one could be released from prison. Well, when the other servants, there were, you know, the supporting cast of servants saw what the first servant had done to the second one, it says they were distressed. And they went to the king. And they told the king what happened. That that servant that you had forgiven so much actually went to a fellow servant who owed him just a little bit and demanded it and had him actually thrown into prison. And so the king is really upset. And the king said, you know what? Bring him to me. And so the king brought him in to confront him. The first servant had received forgiveness for his enormous debt, yet he was unwilling to do the same for a much lesser amount for his fellow servant. And the parable ends with the king throwing the first servant into prison until he could repay, which was never. Much was given, and in return, much is required. Now, through this parable, Jesus taught that the debt of sin is beyond human calculation. The debt of sin is impossible to repay. Yet God releases us from the enormous debt of sin when we seek his forgiveness. And in response... Followers of Jesus who have been forgiven must in return forgive others. In fact, failure to forgive excludes us from the kingdom. That's, that's the end of the, of the story. If we, are, if we fail to reciprocate forgiveness, we can't be a part of the kingdom of God. Both divine and interpersonal forgiveness are both expressed within the context of humility. And if you read all of Matthew 18, you'll see that the theme of humility is driven in time and time and time again, starting with the little children coming to Jesus. Because humility is so incredibly important to forgiveness. And so the Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians 2 six to eight. And he's, what he says is, to his readers is this. He says, you know what? The pre-incarnate Jesus, the Jesus before he came to us, possessed equality with God, with the Father. But Jesus resolved not to cling to it. Instead, by coming to us through the incarnation, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, he says Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant and was obedient to a disgraceful death of crucifixion. Why? For the benefit of others. You see, to be great in the kingdom of God requires humbling oneself, being willing to assume a lower status, elevating others above oneself, being willing to do what it takes to restore others. And all of these things were modeled to us in humility and on 
limited forgiveness by Jesus himself. He is the standard we're following. Folks, it's only when we as followers of Jesus understand the enormity of the forgiveness given by God to us that we are able to to demonstrate unlimited forgiveness to others. When we understand the depth of our sin, when we begin to get a glimpse at and understanding the forgiveness that has been granted to us by God, we are humbled. It's humbling. Jesus modeled humility and unlimited forgiveness in his death on the cross, and his followers are called to model the same humility and unlimited forgiveness in our relationship with others. Now, I believe it's important to state today that forgiveness is not about not holding someone accountable for their wrongdoing. I've heard people say that. Well, if we're going to be forgiving, we don't need to hold them accountable. No, that's not true. Forgiveness is not about not holding people accountable. Forgiveness is not about moving forward as nothing ever happened. There are so many families when we don't know what to do, our usual response is to do nothing. And so many families do that. There is, there is uh, issues and problems and, and people have been affected. And because we don't know what to do, well, then we just do nothing and we move forward as if nothing ever happened. Forgiveness is not that. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about remaining in an, ab- an abusive and dysfunctional relationship. I've talked to people who've been advised by other believers that they should stay in abusive, dysfunctional relationships because that is a demonstration of forgiveness. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Forgiveness is not about remaining in an abusive and dysfunctional relationship. And it's important to understand that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Because there are some scenarios where forgiveness is possible, but the situation is so complex that reconciliation will never be able to be possible. So then what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is about releasing another person of the debt that they have created in your life by their wrong words and their wrong actions, even if they are not remorseful for their behavior. Forgiveness is about releasing yourself from the bitterness that will inevitably set in if we harbor the debt incurred when people hurt us. The bitterness that will thrive if we don't forgive. You see, by forgiving others, by releasing them of the debt, even if they're not remorseful, even if there is no chance of reconciliation, by releasing others of the debt, we experience the freedom that comes by doing what has been modeled for us by Jesus, forgiving others, and by doing that, We are free from captivity. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Jesus declared that he came to bring freedom to captives, those who were struggling under the bondage of sin. And he made freedom possible by way of his crucifixion, taking the sin of all humanity on himself and restoring us to relationship with the Father. Jesus was true to his word. He said he came to do that, and he did it. And he did it. Often it's easier to talk about forgiveness than it is to extend it to those that we feel are not worthy of it. And so using a story that included the themes of debt and forgiveness, Jesus elevated the importance of forgiveness. Divine forgiveness, God forgiving us for a debt we could never repay, and interpersonal forgiveness that we are then in turn not only able, but expected to forgive others. And the two go hand in hand. 
Because it is only when we understand the enormity of the forgiveness that we have been granted by God will we be able to demonstrate unlimited forgiveness to others. Would you stand with us this morning? Carlene is going to lead us as we celebrate the freedom that Jesus has provided for us this morning. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the and like a flood <laughs> his mercy reigns aren't you glad you got caught in that downpour <laughs> amen well you know as we go to prayer today I'm really excited to share some good news with you you know often we and we'll continue to bear the burdens and the pain of those who are part of us as they journey through their own painful seasons and as we lift them up and we pray for them, when we have the moments where we're able to, to celebrate, then we do that too. 
So for a while, we've been praying for Todd White, Ron and Bertie's son, Todd. And uh, through the end of June, he had finished all his treatments and was waiting for a report as to whether, and there was a large concern that these treatments really would not be helpful. But I heard from Ron and Bertie this week, and um, they informed me that in doing the follow-up test, the oncologists weren't able to see any evidence of cancer. And uh, yeah, and they're going to monitor him over the next, every couple of years, just continue to monitor him. And that's, that is a tremendous answer to prayer. That is a tremendous answer to prayer. On Friday, Gina had her final treatment and rang the bell and uh, left the hospital. And in a few weeks, you'll know uh, the effectiveness of, of her treatments. And we've been praying for Gina Cree as she's gone through uh, six treatments over three weeks apart. So that's been quite a while that she's been on that journey. And so we're just praying, thanking God that she's, she's through that process and we're just waiting for and believing for a good answer. And then Emma has uh, been released to come home this week. She's home with her, her family. And uh, as we continue to pray for her, we're just delighted that she's improved to that point where she can leave the hospital. We're continuing to pray for Edith who needs God's touch in her life and for Cammie who's continuing to struggle with the pain of arthritis and so many others that I know some, so many of you have so many things. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so grateful that like a flood, your mercy reigns on us. That we just lift our face to the sky and allow the downpour of your grace to pour over us. You are been so good to us. You are so gracious, forgiving and kind, passionate. You saw us in our need and you did something about it. You see us in our need and you continue to do something about it. And we offer up praise and thanks to you. And we ask that you would help us to never take your grace for granted to the point where we are not able to extend that same grace on such a smaller level to those around us. If you could do that for us, then we know we can do this for others. Father, today we celebrate Todd's result. We give you praise and we give you thanks. And we pray that you would be with him as he moves forward. That every follow-up test would continue to affirm his health and life with his family. Lord, we thank you that Gina has come through this series of treatments. And as she now waits the next few weeks to find out, I pray for your peace, your comfort, your strength. And we pray mostly, Lord, for a good response, a good report. That's what we want to hear. And we're asking for that today. We thank you that Emma's at home with her family, with her sisters. And God, I pray that your hand would continue to be upon her continuing to heal her, strengthening her, helping her to grow and develop with all the setbacks that her lifelong illness to this point have put upon her, to strengthen her family, lead them, guide them, give them wisdom. We pray for Edith today. And Lord, we know that if whenever there's enough strength and energy to be in this room on a Sunday morning, she's going to be here. And I pray today for your peace and your comfort to surround her. Pray for your strength for her. And God, we pray for a miracle for her. And Lord, we pray that you would be with her today. We pray for Cammie as she struggles. And I pray for a relief of pain for her and a good solution to that situation for her. And I pray for those that are on the live stream or even here in this building today. And you, they're carrying burdens they're facing circumstances, they're hurting, they're broken, they're grieving, whatever it may be today. I pray that your love, your mercy, and your grace would pour upon each and every one of them, reminding each of us how loved we are by you, that we are never forgotten, that you hold us, and that your, our name is written on your hands. And we're so grateful for that. And as we leave this place today, May we be in this world, a world where there is so much hate, a world where there is so much division, 
a world that is so opinionated, a world that is so broken, may we be instruments of forgiveness and grace and mercy and healing and hope as we declare the good news of your kingdom. And we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Have a great week, a great day. God willing, we'll see you next Sunday.